I'm going to ask you to now turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide, uh, where you'll see our, our portion of Luke's gospel that we'll be looking at today. If you have a Bible in hand, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. We'll be paying attention mostly to verses 46 through 50. If you haven't noticed, Luke has been a uh, uh, Luke 9 has been a pretty long chapter, and we've been, we've been in it for a while. Uh, we are actually nearing the end of our series in Luke. Towards the end of the spring, we'll be moving into a different series, but we'll be picking it back up next winter. Um, but uh, just a couple more weeks here in Luke uh, before we move on. If you're new here this morning, if you're not too familiar with what you're looking at here in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, let me just remind you of what Luke is. Luke is a first century document which describes in detail the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who Luke describes is the Son of God, who is Emmanuel, God with us. That's who he's writing about. Luke's gospel, he writes based on early eyewitness uh, records of those who follow Jesus. And so we are to believe that what we're reading here is a faithful, trustworthy account of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why that matters to us. We can believe what we're reading right, right now, but, but Luke's right, Luke writes with more than just trying to pass on factual, accurate information. He wants his readers, whether they're living in the first century or the 21st century, to believe this good news about Jesus, to find rest and security and peace with God through this Jesus, to give their lives, to build their whole selves on this Jesus. So it's, this is more than just information transfer that's happening. This is meant to be transformational for us today. I'm going to again direct your attention to Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. An argument arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for your word. We ask again more than just information transfer this morning, but transformation, that we would be changed by this vision that you're giving us in this text. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we're we're nine chapters into Luke's gospel, and and if you've been paying attention, many of the words and deeds of Jesus up to this point have been giving the disciples and the crowds following him new vision. This is what Jesus has been doing. He, he's been trying to give them a new vision, to see things differently. But this is what's been happening over and over again in Luke's gospel. People can't properly see who Jesus is and, 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 and what he has come to do because the disciples' vision is blurry. They need new vision. They need to be cleansed in what they're seeing. See, this is what was happening in the first century. In the first century, uh, where Luke was written, where Jesus is ministering, the disciples are active, the nation of Israel had been oppressed and under the thumb of foreign nations for as long as they could remember. Um, The Assyrians had captured northern Israel in the 7th century B.C. They they had forcefully deported many of the Israelites into captivity. The Babylonians, they took over the southern uh, uh, area of Israel in the 5th century, and they did the same. 
The Persian Empire came and they beat the Babylonians in the 4th century and they ruled over all Israel until Alexander the Great came. And he and the Greeks, they took over after that. And in the generation before Jesus' birth, it was the Roman Empire. They were the new world power. Uh, uh, Rome's general Pompey, he strolled into Jerusalem with a powerful army behind him and once again subjected the nation of Israel to the shame and indignity of service to an enemy nation. So listen, all the disciples knew, all that their parents and all their grandparents had experienced growing up was Rome or some other nation winning and Israel losing. That was the pattern that they were used to. Other nations were great and glorious. Israel was weak and lowly. But the hope of Israel, their long-awaited hope, was that God had not forgotten them. That, that his promises to help to restore Israel, that they were not forgotten. That God would one day send to them the Messiah. This is what they were hoping for, what they were longing for, that the Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer, the heir to Israel's greatest king, King David, would come again. And they hoped and they longed for that day when God would rescue them from their enemies and bring them back to greatness, back to their winning ways. And then Jesus comes and he bears all of the marks of the Messiah. And they're sure that he is the one. He teaches with authority. He leads people. His power, his power over nature, power over sickness, death itself, over the demonic. He forgives sins. But there's a problem. He keeps on presenting a drastically different vision of how the Messiah will restore Israel, how he will bring back greatness to the nation. Jesus hasn't come wielding political power. He's not a bigger, badder version of General Pompey. No, the Messiah is a shepherd. He's come to care for the lost sheep of Israel. He identifies <coughs> Israel's greatest threat, not as an external uh, nation or army, but their greatest threat is internal disobedience, the false loves that have captured their hearts. Israel's bondage to sin is far more deadly than their bondage under Rome. And so to make people truly free, the Messiah, Jesus is saying, must deal with their sins first, must deal with their hearts Jesus says that he hasn't come to defeat Israel's enemies by swinging a sword, but by bearing a cross. The Messiah is not who they thought he would be. So Jesus, over and over again throughout Luke's gospel so far, has been giving them this new vision. This is who I am. This is what I have come to do. He repeats it over and over again, and they're totally lost. They just can't see it. And so what's happening in our section in Luke this morning is... Is, is seeing that part of the reason the disciples have a hard time seeing Jesus' mission and seeing who he is rightly is that they have need for a new vision for more things than just who the Messiah is. They can't see the Messiah rightly because their vision of other things is poor as well. Think of it like you're trying to drive at night and you're trying to keep your eyes on the road, but your windshield is covered with dirt and grime. And it's not just that, but you're wearing glasses that have scratches and smudges on them. And then you get, you know, some dirt in your eye. The disciples can't properly see who Jesus is as the Messiah and what it means to be his disciples because their vision's so blurry. They can't see the road because other things between them and the road are blurry too. And if you're here this morning and you have a hard time getting Jesus, like you're looking at him, but you're not seeing what other people tend to see, Jesus wants to help you with your vision this morning. If, you, if you've been following Jesus for some time now, but your faith isn't where you know it ought to be, you're not walking in obedience and in joy, you often struggle with your faith, Jesus wants to help you too. 
Jesus does this by doing this, by giving us new vision, by clearing out the smudges, by helping correct the way that we see things. And there's two things in this passage that Jesus wants to help us to see in radically different ways. And once these things are corrected, we can better see Jesus himself. So this is our outline this morning. To see Jesus rightly, you must be given a new vision of greatness and a new vision of winning. A new vision of greatness and a new vision of winning. So first, you need a new vision of greatness in order to see Jesus rightly. If you look down at verse 46, Luke tells us about uh, an argument that the disciples are having one day. This is one of these funny moments, maybe, uh, for the disciples, if it didn't seem so true to our own lives and experience. The word argument there, it actually could be, it sounds kind of intense, like they were maybe having a shouting match with each other, but really that word could just mean having a reasoned discussion, like, like in a courtroom where people are laying out their case and they're, they're, they're making an argument for something. And thing, the thing that they're arguing with one another over is, is this question, who's the greatest? Like of the 12 of us, who's the top dog? Uh, who will one day be the most famous among us? Who, when Jesus finally brings this long-awaited kingdom that we're so excited to see, um, who will have pride of place in it? Which of us? And this is, this is, if you've been reading Luke with us, you know that this is actually like pretty painful and, and tone-deaf of the disciples because right before this, Jesus has said to them in verse 44, right before our section, he said to the disciples, let these words sink in. Hear what I'm saying. The Son of Man, the Messiah, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. As the Messiah, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be popular with people. I'll be hated. I'll be destroyed by the people. I won't be lifted up on a pedestal. I'll be hoisted up on a cross. But the disciples here in our section, just a few verses after Jesus has, has told them who the Messiah is, they're jockeying with each other about who will be the most popular, who will be the most noteworthy, the most respected, the most honored among people, who will be the greatest. You look at verse 47, Jesus he understands them. He understands what's going on in their hearts. He knows the reasoning of their hearts. And so he addresses a heart problem that's going on here. And this is, what, this is how he does it. He sets a little child among them, a very tiny one. And he says this. He says, welcoming, welcoming a little child in my name, receiving them, caring for them like a special and honored guest, that's greatness. Receiving and welcoming a child is like welcoming me. Look at verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And those who welcome me, they're welcoming my Father, the one who sent me. If you want greatness, listen, this is what Jesus is saying. If you want greatness, if you want to see greatness rightly, if you want God the Father to be pleased with you, welcome little ones. Now, this, this would, might make no sense to you. It, might, it didn't make a lot of sense to the disciples because their vision's blurry. They see greatness in a totally different category. They see greatness like we do. Greatness is to be well-known. It's to be well-respected by our peers, by those people that we respect, uh, according to our own self-image, uh, meeting society's expectations for people of my age and my stage. But Jesus is telling them, no, you're not seeing greatness rightly. Greatness isn't like that. Greatness is closer to child care than self-care. It's, it's, it's humbly caring for people who have a lesser status than you, not using them to serve you. 
See, in the ancient world, not too different from our own world, children were not valued members of society. They were of very low status. No one really cared about what they did or what they thought. But Jesus wants to give the disciples a new vision of greatness. Greatness isn't about you achieving your own glory. Greatness is receiving others for God's glory. It's not about you climbing up a ladder of notoriety and influence, but climbing down off of your proud high horse to help and serve those who need it most. I want you to think of it like this. Sadly, in churches, uh, you know, in other organizations for sure, there's sometimes arguments about who gets to be the leader, who gets to be in charge. Let's just pick on the church for a minute, okay? Who is the person who gets to make the decisions and lead the adults? Who gets to stand out in front who gets the title pastor and deacon or whatever? People are often arguing and trying to make a case for themselves on why it should be them. I'm smart. I'm talented. I have the credentials. Why not me? They often argue that it's unfair that certain people get more respect in the church, more authority, more leadership opportunities. They point out that Perhaps they're more qualified than others to lead. However, there are almost never any similar arguments about who gets to volunteer in the nursery or teach Sunday school. We don't see similar arguments happening in the church. Nobody's arguing and fighting about feeling disrespected because, hey, it's not fair that other people get the chance to carry a crying baby or answer the theological questions of four-year-olds. That's not right. I should be given that opportunity. And this is owing to our incredibly poor vision of what greatness truly is. We see greatness just like the disciples did, just like our world does. We think greatness is about making myself big, not small. It's about being in charge of the adults, not about making little kids feel welcomed and loved. Greatness is about me realizing my potential and maximizing what I can achieve, not humbly receiving others for their good. Greatness is about me achieving a name, a title, an academic credential, a reputation among people I respect, not about having no reputation among people who little, matter, who little matter to others. Greatness in our mind is about being served, not serving others. So is it any wonder that we don't get Jesus? That he doesn't make any sense to us? Because this is Jesus' whole life. His whole life is in service to those who are the neediest, to the broken, to sick sinners like you and me. And sadly... Sadly, this isn't the last time that we will have to deal with this. Actually, as we go on in Luke, in Luke chapter 22, somehow the disciples have the exact same conversation. And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. A dispute again rose among the disciples as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who's greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, I, the Messiah, I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus came as the one who serves, the one who made himself low to serve us. And this has to be your vision of greatness, our church's vision of what true greatness is. Look at the end of verse 48 of our text. Jesus isn't against greatness. But he has a radically different vision for it. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. And unless you're given a new vision of greatness like this, you'll never understand Jesus rightly. You cannot see him properly because you'll forever be chasing greatness in all the wrong ways. Friends, do you welcome those that are 
that, that you consider lower than you, those who have nothing to offer you, who cannot advance you in any way? Do you think when you're serving children, those who can't do anything to help you along, that you're doing a lesser thing? Do you see that the greatest use of your life is not making yourself big and serving yourself, but making yourself small in the service of others? This is what Jesus, our rescuer, this is what the Redeemer has come to do. So to see Jesus rightly, he has to give us new vision. First, you have to have a new vision of greatness. And second, you need a new vision of winning. You need a new vision of winning. And Jesus gives us that. After Jesus drops this, uh, uh, this pronouncement on the disciples in the first half of our text, I'm imagining there's a long, awkward silence where the disciples are processing and thinking about it. And then John uh, realizes that they may have just done something recently against what Jesus was just teaching. They have a specific instance in mind where they didn't do a very good job of humbly receiving somebody. And so if you look at verse 49, John mentions in response to what Jesus just said, maybe somewhat worriedly, he says, Jesus, um, we recently didn't do that. There was someone casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of our inner circle. He wasn't one of the 12, so we tried to stop him. How about that? What do you think of that? And Jesus, in verse 50, he responds like this. Don't stop him. Don't stop someone like that. For the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus gives the disciples, those who, they are, who are so concerned with personal achievement and greatness, they, he gives them not only a new vision of greatness, but a new vision of winning. Winning in this vision is not about you. Winning is when God gets glorified and his kingdom is advanced. Winning is not when you get credit and attention. Winning is when God gets all the attention. Winning is celebrating God's work in this world, no matter who he's using, to bring about these wonderful works. The fact that this man the disciples encountered wasn't following them, wasn't in that inner circle, it seemed to mean nothing to Jesus. Evidently, the man was doing these things in Jesus' name to honor Jesus in some way. And Jesus said, leave him alone. That's a win. Satan's kingdom is being pulled down. God's kingdom is being built up. Who cares if you get noticed? <laughs> Who cares if he gets the attention and you don't? As long as God, made, God is being made known, that's a win. That is winning. When the Apostle Paul was arrested and, and he couldn't preach publicly, um, there were apparently other people traveling around in the area who were preaching the gospel too. And they were having some success. However, Paul notes that some of these people, they seem to have like some sort of a beef with Paul. They didn't like him. And in fact, they, they might have had bad motives for preaching the gospel. But this is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1. He writes this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry against, against him, against Paul, but others from goodwill. What then? He's saying, I don't, I don't care. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This is what J.C. Ryle writes in his commentary on Luke. He says, Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. Now, this section of Luke, might, it might hit me a little harder than it hits you. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Because, like, I, I hate to say it, but often as a, as a pastor, I, I'm tempted to feel 
competition with other pastors and churches. I don't know if you know that about me or if you know that about pastors, but that's actually reality. This isn't good. Pray for me, right? When, when I see other churches in Halifax and beyond, when I see them succeeding, when I see lots of people attending their church, when they're buying a new church building, they have a nice pulpit of some sort, they're baptizing tons of people, doing really great stuff in the city, I can feel jealous. I can feel like I'm losing somehow. Might seem small, might seem really petty to you, right? I can think they're not in the PCA. They're not Presbyterian. They don't have a robust theology like we do or, or ancient liturgical practices. They're kind of goofy. I kind of wish they'd stop, that they'd join us. When I see someone else doing better than me, somehow I feel like I'm losing. And so Jesus has to give me a brand new vision of winning. The only concern that I have the only concern our church ought to have is that God's glorified and his kingdom advances. Listen, if Christ's church fades away, if, if our church becomes nothing, and a different church in Halifax has massive evangelistic and discipleship success, you know, they're, they're on local and national and international news, thousands of lives in Halifax are being transformed through that church and not ours, that's a win. That is winning. Because it's not about Christ's church. It's, it's about Christ's church, right? It's about his kingdom and not ours. If Christ's church, Halifax, faded to just a few people next Sunday, and yet God's kingdom exploded in Halifax through the labors of other churches and continues to grow and grow, that would be winning. Could we celebrate that here? How do you view another church's success, another person's spiritual growth and maturity? Is it celebration or is it stress? Is it worry? What we see in Jesus is someone whose vision of winning was just that. He gladly shares the work of the kingdom with others. He celebrates every kingdom win. Jesus trained and equipped people like you and me, people who often have less than perfect motives to be his disciples and sent them out into the world to make disciples of others. Jesus's priority was on kingdom advancement, not on him doing all the work. And when Jesus was facing death on the cross, and about to be made nothing and killed in the eyes of, uh, of everyone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' vision of winning was not him getting his own way, but seeing God glorified and the kingdom advanced, whatever that would mean for him individually. To see Jesus rightly, to see him rightly, you need a new vision. You need a new vision first of greatness, and second, you need a new vision of winning. Let's end with this. We live in a world just like the disciples did, where, where greatness is about being served, bending other people to serve your vision for your life. And winning is when us and our kingdom gets the attention, when it's on the march and advancing. And Jesus is telling us here that our vision is tragically blurred. That we cannot see him rightly because we see greatness and we see winning wrongly. But if you're like me, sometimes it feels like I can't help but see this way. Uh, this is how I've been, this is the air that I've been breathing since I was young. How do I get out of this? How can I, my vision be, create, uh, be corrected? And this is what Jesus is telling us here. You need more than new information. You need a rescuer. You need Jesus to get out of this. Jesus, who had every right to greatness, who is worthy of all honor and a kingdom for himself, but instead of laying claim to these things, he gave them all up. 
He gave up his own life so that he could serve and restore us. Jesus was made nothing so you could receive everything and share in his glory forever. For Jesus, that was greatness. For Jesus, that was winning. And that's something that we celebrate and remember now at the table in a moment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending such a rescuer to us who didn't crave and cling to things as we tend to do, but freely gave his life for the good of others. Father, would that build worship in our hearts, but also change our vision so that we can view greatness and winning in the church and in our lives very differently. Father, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us. We ask that you would clear our vision, that we'd be able to see rightly because of what Christ has done for us. We pray that in his name. Amen.